0: Well good morning. Good Uh, good to see y'all this morning. It's been a beautiful weekend. Uh, It's just a lot to give thanks for this incredible weather. As somebody said earlier, this is chamber of commerce weather right here. So let's enjoy it uh, while we've got it. Uh, I know a lot of our folks are Traveling. We've got a big crowd online today because of spring break. And so if you're joining online, welcome. We're so glad you're here uh, to worship with us. You know, today we come to the halfway point in our series on Ephesians, a, s- a series we're calling Life Made New. Uh, we're coming to the end of chapter three, and it's this amazing prayer that Dave just read uh, that really is one of the most beloved prayers in all of the New Testament. Uh, Here in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. So we're going to take a look at this powerful prayer. But before we do that, I want to, because we're kind of at the halfway point, I want to kind of recap where we've been over the last about five weeks. Uh, Before we turn our attention, uh, the week after Easter, we'll take a week off for Palm Sunday. And Easter, we'll turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, and through six, the Sunday after. But I wanna look again at the first half and just review where we've been so we don't kind of miss the forest for the trees, uh, so to speak, understand where we've been. And, and so basically, we've looked uh, at Ephesians 1 through 3 together. And if you got your Bible, I wanna encourage you to open it up so you can be following along in chapter one. Uh, as we look back on chapter one, we really started with this question of identity, right? Of who am I? This fundamental human question. We discovered the good news uh, about who we are in Christ, that we're no longer rejected or alone, we're chosen and we're adopted. We aren't unforgivable or unchangeable, but redeemed. We aren't hopeless, but we are actually given a future. We're God's own and he will never give up on us. We are sealed by his Holy Spirit, we're told. In short, we are, as we said, we are who God says we are. That's our identity. And then we looked to, at well, who is this God who says who we are? Uh, He's the God who has revealed himself in his son Jesus. He's the God who's revealed himself in his word and the God who is present with us and in us by his loving and powerful personal presence, his Holy Spirit. That's how we know God. He's the God who made us and the God who loves us uh, and it can actually be known by us. And so then we looked at chapter two uh, and asked how is all that possible? How, How is it we can know who we are and how can we know this God? And Paul unpacks that. He says that we were spiritually dead That before Christ, we had rejected God. We were cut off from him by our sin. We were slaves to our selfish desires and under the influence of of evil and that we were actually deserving of God's judgment. But God, do you all remember the big but God. God has done something about it. He wasn't content to leave us there. In his love, Paul says, in his kindness, in his mercy, in his grace, what did he do? He saved us from all of that. He has saved us and made us alive. He's given us victory over sin and death and evil. And all that's possible because Jesus has taken our place on the cross and suffered the judgment that we ourselves deserve. So that in Christ, we are forgiven children, deeply, deeply loved by our Heavenly Father. That's the good news of the gospel. So that was chapter 2. And then chapter 3 comes to this question, well, what does that mean? What are kind of the implications of what you're telling us, Paul, about who we are, who God says we are, and what he's done for us? Uh, and it, it means some really important things. The biggest thing it means is that we're not alienated from God anymore, and we're not alienated from each other anymore. Uh, without Christ, we were both alienated from God and from one another. But Ephesians three thirteen another, but now, but God has done for us something we could not do for ourselves. We who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ, for he himself is our peace, right? He's what makes us whole as people in relationship with him and whole in relationship with one another. And so all the things, Paul says, all the things that have divided us, now they all fade into the background, right? They fade in comparison to what unites us, and what unites us is our life in Christ. And so Jesus points us to this great truth with his life and his death and his resurrection. The gospel offers us hope for even the deepest divisions in the history of humanity, and Paul points that out with the example of the Jews and the Gentiles, and he kind of unpacks that for us, and he celebrates that, and he calls it a mystery. He says, that's the great mystery. He says, God's purposes for Israel to live as a witness to the world has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus, and the promise that God made to call all people to himself Uh, from among the nations is fulfilled by the body of Christ, that is, the one people of God, the church. And so God has taken Jew and Gentile, all the division, all the divided people of the world, he's made them one people in Christ, the church. And so for Paul, what he's excited about as he gets here to the end of chapter three, when he begins to pray this amazing prayer at the end of chapter three, is that God has done that. He's done the impossible. God has done the impossible. Paul's exploding with joy as he prays these words. It's one of the reasons they're beautiful and powerful. He's so excited because he understands that God has brought about something supernatural that only God can do. Supernatural unity to humanity through his son, Jesus Christ. And it's that miracle that miracle that Paul is celebrating in his prayer. So with that in mind, I wanna read these words again because it gives us, I think, a, a clear understanding of what he's actually praying for when he prays these words. So when he says, for this reason, he's talking about that supernatural miracle, that mystery, Jew and Gentile together and one people of God. He's talking about this incredible miracle of supernatural unity in Jesus. And he says, for that reason, I now bend my knee, I bow my knee before the Father, Jews prayed standing up typically. To bend your knee, to get down on your knees was a huge act of devotion and submission. It was, it was a special signal that for Paul, this was huge. He was overwhelmed by what God had done and revealed to him and the gospel that he was getting to share. He bows his knee before the Father from whom, and most translations say, every family in heaven and on earth is named. It would probably be better to say the whole family of God on earth and in heaven Uh, that's what he's talking about. He's praying for the whole people of God, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you strength with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with who? All the saints, all the saints, the whole people of God. Again, what is the breadth and the depth and the length and the height And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled, filled with this incredible truth, all the fullness of God. And so Paul prays. He prays in the sense of awe because he knows what God has done is humanly impossible. This unity, this bringing together of people in Christ has now been made possible, supernaturally possible. It's the supernatural unity That he's talked about up to this point, in other words, that gives him uh, the direction for this prayer. Which I think is really interesting, because maybe like me, you've heard this prayer kind of quoted often. It's a powerful prayer, and it can be powerful as we pray it together as the people of God. But it's rare that I've heard it prayed actually in the spirit of the church's unity, Right? It's not really focused on that typically, but that's exactly Paul's focus here. And it drives him to ask for God to strengthen us with the power that comes through his spirit. It's why he prays that Christ would dwell in us and that he, we, would, we would know the vast dimensions of the love of Christ for us. That this love would, would power our love, not only for God, but for, for one another. And he prays in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It structures his prayer. You can see that there. And it brings about God's eternal purpose in the church, in our church, here at Apostles, for us to live with him as one people who bear witness to his glory in the world. So Paul ends with this incredible kind of eruption of worship. Right here at the end of chapter three, he says, and so now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the great power at work within us, to him be the glory, and what? In the church, right? He's praying in the church, in the unity of the church, the people of God, how is that possible? And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, for eternity. Amen, amen. That's the prayer of Paul. And so as he prays this, again, he's praying for what's humanly impossible. And man, have we felt that this year. Unity is humanly impossible, isn't it? But he praises God that true unity, being the one people of God in Christ, it is supernaturally possible. God can do all things. And so he praises God for that. So the great news for us is that that kind of supernatural unity is possible. And it's possible for us here at Apostles. It's possible in every expression of the church around the world, in every culture, in every place, in every time. And so we can experience it. And we have experienced it. We've experienced measures of this in our own community, the supernatural unity, and I think God wants us to experience more. He wants to invite us into more and more of that unity. He wants the world, in other words, outside of this church family to, to look on us and wonder as he takes a diverse people with little or nothing in common who disagree deeply, right, about important things. We have Significant disagreements about different things in our lives. People who could easily be divided by all kinds of things for all kinds of reasons and yet, and yet, the gospel makes us one. That is the testimony of the church in the hands of a good God who loves us and makes us one. So in the church, the strength, you could say it this way, the strength of our collective witness is our diversity, right? It it gives God a, a a canvas, right? It gives God a platform. It gives God the chance to showcase the supernatural love and power of the gospel. Now, I, I've used the word diversity. Let me let's let's talk about diversity because diversity is a word that gets used a lot in our culture, right? It's a very popular idea in our current cultural moment, um, and most often it's applied to race or ethnicity. Uh, or increasingly to gender and sexuality. And while I would definitely affirm there are aspects of, of this kind of approach and understanding to diversity that's present in our culture that, that promotes things like acceptance and promotes things like awareness of those who are different than us, that can be good. There's good in that. Right? And yet, And yet, I think there's a lot of problems with the way our culture defines and talks about diversity. And primarily, I think the main problem is that our culture tends to idolize diversity, to seek diversity for diversity's sake, which I think, ironically, and I think we've been experiencing this more and more in our country, is actually divisive. It doesn't bring people together. It's actually divisive. So let me just illustrate one way I've seen this working itself out. So I was at an outdoor coffee shop here in the Heights uh, about a month ago, and I was, I was sitting there, and there was a, a group of, I would guess they were probably middle school kids that were sitting a few tables away from me, and they were having a conversation. And I was really impressed, and I started eavesdropping because they were having this really in, in, intense conversation about race. And I, so I was impressed that they were just sitting there having coffee, talking about this as like fifth graders, you know? And so I was just kind of eavesdropping, and, and, and when they were talking about race, you know, it was three white students, and one of them said to the other, he said, no, we're white, we can't possibly understand black people because we haven't been through what they have been through. And as I listened to that comment, it just stuck with me. And I was like, something about that feels off to me. What, what, what is, Lord, what is off about that? Because I, I felt immediately kind of a tinge of sadness for these students. And as I've thought about it, I, I realized that what makes me sad about that is, is that that statement that they've been taught Right? They've received that from somewhere. That, that statement is based on a belief that at some level I should be ashamed of who I am and that I can never possibly know or understand you. Right? There's a fundamental assumption at work there. And so it basically it works itself out. There's, there's a fundamental thing that's wrong with me because I'm white and I can never understand you because you're black. That's what was being said. And so you can see that's that's an approach to diversity and talking about diversity that actually is divisive. It actually leads to alienation. We can never really know one another, which means we can never really love one another. Instead, all we're left with is blame and shame in our relationship with one another. And thankfully, thank God, Paul's idea of diversity (laughs) is totally different than that. Paul's idea of diversity goes in a completely different direction than our culture's popular idea of diversity. It doesn't motivate with guilt and shame. It motivates with love. It motivates with the love of the other. Paul says in Christ, any difference that we might otherwise have that divides us is totally eclipsed by the gospel that unites us. And that we are a people so captivated right, by God's love for us We are so overwhelmed, filled with the love of God for us and Jesus that we can't help but love one another. There's no barrier to that love. Paul is saying the local church is a community of radical love that is no respecter of barriers. That's what he's proclaiming here. Now, one of the things I I love about apostles is that there's some, some barriers that we've just busted through, and I love it. Right? So one of the barriers that, that we seem to be no respecter of is the multi-generational church. It's something I think we could easily miss, but it's a real strength and real gift of God in our church. It's not something I've experienced in most churches that I've been a part of, but God has given us this incredible gift that we have people in our small church from a wide variety of ages. Our culture And this is why I think it's so significant, because our culture has become increasingly generationally divided into these kind of monolithic little groups as far as age. You know, it's hard to find meaningful community that that you actually see connecting people across generations outside of family groups, right? It's hard to find that. Uh, Even in large churches where there may appear to be this kind of multi-generational diversity, I'm not convinced a lot of times there's actual unity, because what takes place, at least in my experience, is that we're quickly separating people out into ministries and to different programs for millennial singles, for young families, for retirees. And so we, we, we actually undermine the unity that God has given us in the church. The local church should be crossing generational boundaries all over the place in every direction Uh, It should be crossing economic boundaries, political boundaries, social boundaries, cultural and ethnic boundaries. I mean, let's just try to imagine, right, a church that crosses all those kinds of boundaries on a regular basis. Imagine a church uh, full of people who really know and love each other that includes unrelated 25-year-olds hanging out with uh, 75-year-olds. Like that picture, right? Or or of Democrats and Republicans having dinner together, (laughs) right? Right? Just crazy stuff, black and brown and white people, rich people, families and singles, people, I, this was new to me when I moved to Houston, people from Houston hanging out with people from Dallas. I mean, it's just crazy what God can do, right? In the gospel, he makes us one people. And that kind of community, I mean, just think about it. A picture like that would perplex the world. The world wouldn't know what to do with that. It doesn't make sense. And that's the point. That's the point of what the gospel can do, what Christ can do, the spirit of God can do when he gets a hold of our hearts and he knits us together as one people. It's why Jesus said in those verses I read just a few minutes ago, as as he was going to the cross, he he was facing his own death. These were his last words. And what did he say? A new commandment. I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. He says it twice. Love one another, love one another, love one another, love one another what he calls us to. Why? So that by this, everyone will know. The world will look on us and see the way we love one another, and they will know that we are his or his disciples if we love one another. That's why unity and diversity matter. That's what makes them so powerful. So I want to say to us as a church, apostles, it's our love for one another Our unity with diversity that stands as a witness to Christ's love to the world. It's what glorifies him. So it's a beautiful and good and God-given thing. So so with that in mind and that definition and understanding of diversity and and a supernatural unity um, around it, the question would come up, I think, how does this supernatural unity with diversity happen in the local church? And this question comes up for churches all the time. right? What are we gonna do to create more diversity here at Apostles? Right? Might be the natural question that we wanna ask. What are we gonna do to create that here at Apostles? And I wanna answer very clearly, we are going to do absolutely nothing. Right? We're gonna do nothing to create unity with diversity. Why? Because God's already done it. God's done that. We don't have to do that. We don't have to create it. He's already created it. He's already created unity and diversity in the person of his son. All he's calling us to do is believe in it and then live in light of it. Believe it and live in light of it. That's why Paul says all that he says here. In Ephesians, he says, apart, apart from Christ, we were what? We were separated, we were alienated, we were without hope, but now in Christ, we've been reconciled. We have been brought near. We have peace. We have been made one. This is not aspirational language. This is a declaration of what is true. In Christ, we are one people in him. There is unity. There is diversity in the person of Jesus. His death has accomplished that. And so we need to praise God for that, and we need to live into the truth of that. And so as we do that, as we live into that unity out of this new identity as the one people of God, what happens is diversity flows naturally out of that, right? In other words, you don't have to make an idol of diversity. It is what's produced through a people who are filled with the love of Christ and know who they are. It's what happens in other words, it, it, it's like, I heard one pastor say, it's like, it's like the heat coming off the fire, right? That's diversity. The fire, what God has done in our hearts and our lives, and all he's asking us to do at times is fan the flame. <laughs> but if we don't make the fire. We don't create the fire, but we can fan the flame. And, and Paul points out that truth in chapter four, verse three, when he says, maintain, maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Don't create it but maintain it. In other words, there are things that we can do to stand in the way of God's unity and diversity within the body of Christ. We can get in the way. We can stifle this natural fruit of the gospel. So I think that's a better question. It's not a helpful question to ask, how do we create diversity? We don't. God does that. But, How can we fan the flame and avoid stifling unity with diversity, the supernatural gift that God has given to the local church? Pastor Mark Dever gives uh, three things that I just love and I'm just going to totally steal from his great book called Compelling Community. Uh, I'd highly recommend it to you. But in that book, he says there's three things that we can do to help maintain unity that produces this diversity, that cultivates and fans the flame uh, of what God has already done. And the first one he says, uh, if you wanna jot this down, is don't settle for similarity. Don't settle for similarity. What he's saying is the easy thing to do, the kind of natural tendency that we lean into is to clump together with people who are like us right? There's a reason that birds of a feather flock together, that that saying exists, because it happens, right? We tend to kind of gravitate towards people that are like us, and that in itself is not bad, don't hear me saying that, but but it is our tendency. So here, I'll give you an example. If you were to go to 10 different churches this morning around Houston, my guess is that most of them, as you stood back and you looked at the group, you would be able to identify at least one, two, maybe more reasons that that group of people has gathered together that has nothing to do with Jesus. So, for example, an all-black church or an all-Latino church or an all-white church, right? A a wealthy church, a, a suburban church, a poor church, all millennials, Wow, look at this church full of all these millennials. Man, there's a lot of white hair in this church. You know, like oh, that kind of stuff. You can see it working itself out. I bet if you spend 10 minutes hanging out afterwards, you could figure out pretty quickly that you're in a church full of Republicans or full of Democrats, right? And so it's true. We we tend to flock together with people who are like us and think like us and live like us. And, and part of the reason I think that we're giving in and we're prone to give into that temptation is that, you know, the truth is, I'm this way, we're all this way, we, it's easy to get selfish, to make things about us, if we're not careful. I'm, I'm looking for a church, right? I'm looking for a new church, I'm looking for a church with a, with a Sunday experience that really is customized just right for my personal preferences. None of us have ever said that, we've all done it, <laughs> right? And the church, on the other side of that equation, gives in. The church... Instead of prioritizing unity, the gift of unity, it prioritizes affinity, right It reveals, I think a deep lack of faith. the gospel man, yeah the gospel is powerful, it has the power to, to change your life to, renew, to to reunite Jew and Gentile to one people of God, but millennials and octogenarians, probably not right We got to keep that separate, you know uh, rich and poor, black and brown and white we got not powerful enough for that and so I think We need to work hard to avoid this tendency to pursue people that just are like us because it's comfortable, because it's safe. This isn't to say that there isn't value to connecting with people that are like us. It's natural, it's beneficial, it's good. It helps us feel known and loved. But if we primarily connect around our similarity, it obscures the power of the gospel. The church is called to be a place where supernatural uh, the supernatural work of God is bringing about the unity. I love how says, uh sums it up when he's talking about this. He says, the church should be a place where we can honestly say to others in our community, we are only friends because we are Christians. <laughs> now, I'm not saying go around and say that to people, right? <laughs> Look, we're only friends because of Jesus. Uh, but you get the point, Right? I mean, you shouldn't say that, but you should be able to say that to people in your community. And I think what stands out to me and what he says, that we're only friends because we're Christians, is the word friends. And it stands out to me because the gospel creates relationships with people different than me. And that means relationship matters, right? Gospel diversity isn't just getting together for an hour or hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday in a room to worship with people that look different than me. That's not gospel diversity. It means having real relationships, real friendships that we have no business having, sharing lives with people we have no business sharing lives with according to the world. That's that's the picture of the church that God's calling us to. Number two, he says, be willing to sacrifice. He says, first, don't settle for similarity. Second, be willing to sacrifice. Diversity as we said, is a natural product of following Jesus together. It's what God does. But that doesn't mean it happens without any effort on our part. We have to lean into it in light of our natural tendency, again, to kind of seek our own comfort. And so it's like any part of our discipleship. Life with Jesus is a gift. It's a grace. And it takes a lot of work. It's both. And so the same is true when it comes to the church being the church. Becoming like Jesus is a sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, and it's the result of consistent, intentional work towards holiness. Diversity is no different. God does it, and we have a role to play. And it takes a lot of sacrifice. So just let's think practically about this in in the life of a church, just a local church. I'm not saying our local church. But in, in the life of a church, let's say that uh, there's a lot of different tastes in worship music, right? We all share the same taste, right? We don't have this issue. But let's say, just for example, there's a different, different set of tastes because, right, that should happen. There should be a different set of tastes uh, because if we're supernaturally diverse, we're made of people who are very different and have different backgrounds and different tastes that follows. So what that means is the guiding question for worship cannot be, what kind of music helps me worship God the best? right? It can't be that because everybody's going to have a different answer. Everyone's going to have a different answer in a diverse church. There's going to be lots of different perspectives. So I think just to highlight, whether it's music or any other part of our life together, mutual sacrifice is inherently necessary within the supernatural unity and diversity of the church. Mutual sacrifice is necessary. Sacrificing my comfort, my preferences, my resources, my time, Put, putting what others need, want, desire ahead of my own needs, wants, and desires. And, I mean, you talk about a countercultural picture in the world today, a community that takes that posture. And that's what the church calls us to, to sacrifice for the sake of those who are different from us. Biblical scholar Don Carson, he writes this. He says, ideally, the church is not made up of natural friends or familial ties. It is made up of natural enemies. A church composed of natural friends actually has little to say about the power of the gospel. So this idea, again, a mutual sacrifice, it comes back, right, connects back to Paul's point, the church as a witness to the power of the gospel for the glory of God in the world. Which church has a greater testimony? In the world, a church where we all share the same political opinions or a church that chooses to love one another and worship together and do life together in Christ together despite our political disagreements, right? Just think about what that looks like and feels like. All right, so first ever says, don't settle for similarity. Then he says, be willing to sacrifice. And then finally, uh, just the practical way we can fan the flame of this unity with diversity, he says, is to walk in humility. He says, walk in, walk in a, a measure of humility. How often do I think of the world through the eyes of those who are different than me? That's a good question to ask ourselves. How often do I think of the world through the eyes of those who are different than me? There's always the danger, right, that, that our pride leads us to see the world only through our own life experiences. We tend to think our way of life is, is like the normal way of life in the world. And the gospel actually has the power, it's a gift of the gospel. It has the power to reveal blind spots uh, when we look out at our life and we look out at others because it roots our identity not in our experiences or our preferences or our desires, but in Christ. Our identity is rooted in Christ, so it affects how we see. And here's a real practical way I think you can kind of get at this in your own heart, kind of do a little bit of a diagnostic on yourself. And I, I would say, look at your prayer life. If I look at my prayer life, how I pray and what I pray tells me a lot. What I pray for tells me a lot. Because I tend to pray, I don't know about you, but I tend to pray through the lens of my own life and concerns most of the time. Right? And there's nothing wrong with that. God says we should pray and bring to him all the desires of our heart, all the things that we're concerned about, worries. But how often do I pray for those who are different from me with their concerns on my heart and my mind? Right? So for example, if I'm a teenager, how often are you praying uh, for uh, young parents within our community? Or if you are married how often are you praying over the concerns of those who are single, who are divorced, who are widowed? Am I moved to pray for those concerns uh, of people in our community who are a different ethnicity or race than me? So it kind of gets at this, like our perspective, like where our hearts are and, and how much we're thinking about others as a part of our prayer life. Romans 12 10 through 11, Paul, he talks about this. He calls the church to love one another with a brotherly affection and, I love this, to outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. One of the ways we can do this is to become more aware of our inherent kind of biases and assumptions and seek to empathize with those who are different than us. How, how in other words, can we bear one another's burdens if we don't understand each other? if we can't put ourselves in one another's shoes. So humility moves us to think about life through the experience of others and not just ourselves. So I, I don't know if that's helpful for you. I thought that was really helpful, just to think through kind of a gospel lens about this question of supernatural unity with diversity and those, uh, those ideas that they can help us fan the flame of, of that gospel unity. We don't create it, but we fan the flame through humility, sacrifice, and not settling for similarity. Um, Only the gospel, just to close up, only the gospel, the completed work of Jesus on the cross, has the power to reconcile us to God and to one another. But if we're going to experience this supernatural unity with diversity, we need to work, we need to work on maintaining that unity in the spirit, in the bond of peace. That's what Paul says. So Jesus has given us this picture. He's given us the way to approach it, and he's empowered us to do it. All because he's called us to be a powerful witness in a world that's incredibly divided. Because he's called us to be a people who love one another. A people unified in Christ. And this is the love that Paul celebrates in these final verses of chapter 3. This is what causes him to praise God here in Ephesians 3. The power of the gospel to make diverse and divided people one in Jesus, to create a community marked by supernatural unity. And this is what he prays. He praises God. And let's praise God with these same words today. Now, God, to you, you alone, who are able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think, Lord, as a church, that is our prayer, that you would do more than we can even imagine, especially in this area of helping us to love one another. In this area of supernatural union. You have made us one, Lord. We ask for more of that. We ask that you would help us to love one another more and more and more, not according to our power, but according to the power at work within us by your spirit, and not for our glory, but for your glory in your church because of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that not only for apostles. We pray that for all the church around the world. We pray that for all believers in all generations. We pray that for eternity, forever and ever, amen. Amen. Amen.